Please turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 4, our New Testament reading. It'll be verses 14 to 18, and we'll go to Psalm 52, our sermon text. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. 2 Timothy 4, verses 14 to 18. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now please turn with me to Psalm 52. To the choir master, a masculine of David when Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul... David has come to the house of Ahimelech. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Your tongue plots destruction. Like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good, and lying more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour. Oh, deceitful tongue. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name, for it is good in the presence of the godly. Amen. You may be seated. This psalm, I think, is a great compliment to this morning's uh, sermon on Nahum chapter 1 for a few reasons. I know not all of you were here this morning, um, but if you were, you may remember me talking about how the oracle against Nineveh uh, has not just two characters, God and Nineveh, Nahum 1, has three characters. There's Nineveh, God, and Judah. It's this triangle where God's judgment on the wicked Assyrians is motivated by his covenant relationship with his people, with Israel. And if you look at the three sections of this psalm, you can see three characters. First section is dominated by the word you. Why do you boast of evil? Your tongue, you worker of deceit, you love, you love. Um, Then the second section reorients everything with that turning point in verse 5. But God, what is God going to do? 
And then just as the first section was dominated by the word you, the last section, verses 8 and 9, is marked by the word I. I am like a green olive tree. I trust, I will thank, I will wait. So the interplay among those three characters, the boastful liar, God, and David, that interplay in this psalm is is very much like what we saw this morning in Nahum chapter 1. Once again, like this morning, the, the, the supposedly powerful enemy is going to be completely and totally overthrown by the faithful covenant God. And that judgment on God's enemy is going to be a source of both reverent fear and exuberant joy for the people of God. See, David is going to experience rescue and blessing in this psalm partly through God's judgment on the enemy. And so you can see these similar themes related to this morning. But before I get too far ahead, or before I leave too far behind those who weren't here this morning, let me just give you an outline uh, for where we're going in the remainder of the sermon. First, we're going to look at loving a lie, verses 1 through 4. Second, we'll be wrecked by reality, verses 5 to 7. And then third, trained to trust, verses 8 and 9. So loving a lie, wrecked by reality, and trained to trust. So first, loving a lie. It's bad enough, of course, when people do bad things in secret and uh, sort of get away with it, right? But it's much, much worse, on the other hand. It's a whole nother level of uh, problematic when people do those same wrong things openly, flaunt them, brag about the wrong things they've done, and frankly, plan to continue doing. When that happens, it's a sign that there's a bigger problem than just a person's personal bad choices. It shows that that person is living in an environment where they expect those choices will be accepted and celebrated and will help them to get ahead, will raise their standing and their stature among the people around them um, rather than the other way around, as ought to be the case. And the historical context mentioned in the heading of this psalm is significant uh, in this regard. So in 1 Samuel chapter 21, it's the story of Doeg, 21 to 22, uh, David has to flee from Saul, who is trying for no good reason to kill David. It's this sort of paranoid jealousy of Saul that has been building up until he lashes out at David, and David has to run away. And David stops briefly at the tabernacle, where he gets food and some other help from the high priest there, who, by the way, actually didn't know at the time that David and Saul had had this falling out. Um, Ahimelech thought he was just... uh, you know, helping David on some secret mission that Saul would approve of. But um, Doeg was a man, this Edomite man, who happened to be there at the tabernacle at the time when all this happened. And later, then, we find Doeg among the servants of Saul. And he becomes a snitch. Uh, Saul is still trying to hunt David down. He's exasperated with his... Uh, his servants who won't give him any information about David's whereabouts and 
Doeg steps up and says, well, well, I saw David. I saw him at the tabernacle. I saw the priest give him food and sword of Goliath. And so later when Saul summons the priests from Nob and, and he commands them to be executed right then and there, no, nobody else will do it. Most of his soldiers are reluctant to commit that kind of outrageous, not just injustice, but sacrilege against God's priests who are innocent. But Doeg does it. No job is too dirty for Doeg. So he kills the priests at Saul's command. Now, 1 Samuel doesn't record anything particularly about Doeg boasting about all this afterward. Um, But think about this. Why do you think Doeg did it? Why do you think he betrayed David, betrayed the priests, followed the king's orders to kill them? Surely he thought this was the way to get ahead in Saul's administration. He would have no reason not to brag openly about this dastardly deed in the context of Saul's court. Notice in verses 2 through 4 the emphasis on deception. He's a worker of deceit, lying more than speaking what is right, a deceitful tongue. Now, in the story in 1 Samuel, it's not obvious at first what Doeg's actions have to do with deception. If anything, it seems that his error was in telling Saul the truth about um, what he had seen. He he should have kept it to himself. Here we could think about, um, there's a section in the larger catechism when it's going through the Ten Commandments, and on the Ninth Commandment, it says, the Ninth Commandment doesn't just forbid lying. It's also about speaking the truth unseasonably, or maliciously to a wrong end, or perverting it to a wrong end. It's about, it says, rewarding the wicked according to the work of the righteous and the righteous according to the work of the wicked. It's about calling evil good and good evil. See, Doeg told the truth, quote-unquote, on the surface. But in the bigger picture, what was he doing? He He was participating in what we might call Saul's big lie that that David was out to get him, uh, that David was this traitor who deserved to be hunted down and killed, that anyone who helped David deserved the same. That was Saul's big lie, and Doeg surely knew as anyone else that the priest hadn't intended Saul any harm when he helped David. And yet, Doeg was willing to participate in that falsehood because that's what Saul wanted, affirmed and confirmed by the people around him. And so Doeg was willing to do it. You can see how this description fits then. Your tongue plots destruction. Like a sharp razor, Doeg loved evil more than good. I called this first point, loving a lie. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. Again, it's bad enough for people to be deceived, to be taken in by falsehood. In that respect, those people who are deceived and ignorant are as much the victims as the guilty, at least as much. But much worse is the situation David is describing where people begin to love those lies to elevate those lies deliberately 
above the truth. And this has an application to us much broader than Doeg's, the historical particulars of Doeg's life. Um, I didn't plan this psalm specifically for this weekend, this Lord's Day, here near the beginning of what has come to be known by many as Pride Month. And in fact, I don't know if you've noticed this, I've, I've really chosen not to go out of my way uh, to specially address um, kind of LGBT issues at this time of year in the past, mainly because I'm not really interested in setting the church's agenda by what really amounts to a, a liturgical calendar of the secular culture around us. The fact is, State College did have its Pride March yesterday. And here we are with our text opening with this pointed question Why? Why do you boast of evil? I mean, it's right there in the name Pride. Pride is what all sin. All of our sin is really all about, and it has been ever since the very beginning. Genesis chapter 3. As in that first temptation, as in verses 1 through 4 of this psalm, pride and deception, pride and falsehood always go hand in hand. Pride in general is itself a deception. Think about it. Pride is a deception. It is proposing a falsehood about myself. That I am higher, that I am greater, that I am better, that I am more important than I really am. And whenever we sin, whatever the sin, what we are saying is, in this moment, I am counting myself to be higher even than God. I am counting my desires as higher than his law. My feelings are more important than his commandments. And again, wasn't that the first temptation? You will be like God, knowing good and evil, implying there you'll be able to determine good and evil for yourself. No more submitting to the wisdom and the design and the revelation and the law of God. What matters is now what you think what you feel, not what God thinks or what God commands. Because when you choose to sin, you are putting yourself in his place. And the result is that you're loving evil more than good. And you are putting a lie in the place of the truth. So this is something that none of us are immune from. And it's important to put it in that context This is simply the nature of sins, the nature of temptation, the nature of all the devil's schemes, all of our sinful choices. And that's why we all need Christ's forgiveness. That's why we all need the power of the Holy Spirit to correct us and to transform our hearts, to put evil and good back in their proper places in our minds, in our hearts, in our lives. But tonight I am burdened to remind and warn you, especially and specifically, that we are living in a time where many of the very brightest minds and most powerful institutions 
around us are engaged in a conscious and concerted effort to convince you, and if that's not possible, then to coerce you to embrace the big lie of our time. The big lie that all expressions of human sexuality are equally to be celebrated and affirmed regardless of the law of God. That gender identity is this this fluid continuum regardless of the creation by God of human beings as male and female made for each other in the union of marriage. And furthermore, that anyone who publicly says differently, who who simply, frankly, maintains the historic Christian teaching from the Bible on these matters, Christians have always believed and taught, is not just wrong, not just mistaken, not just in error, but reprehensible and evil. We need to understand that while the, the trappings are new, The fundamental problem is not new. It is just what John warned about in 1 John chapter 2. Do not love the world or the things in the world, he said, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And... It's just what David warned against in Psalm 52. Why do you boast of evil? There's a a book by a contemporary uh, cultural commentator called Live Not by Lies. Some of you may have heard heard of. Um, It's taken, the title of the book is taken from the title of an essay by the Soviet dissident Alexander Solzhenitsyn where he calls on his contemporaries to a personal non-participation in the lies being repeated by the totalitarian regime of his day. Even if all is covered by lies, Solzhenitsyn says, even if all is under their rule, let us resist in the smallest way. He says, let their rule Hold not through me. By extension, we might say, not through my family. Not through my church. A personal non-participation in the lies being repeated all around us all the time. And I think it's a very good point of application for us from this first part of Psalm 52. Even as those big lies of our culture are being repeated over and over, they're taking in... Um, more and more people and taking on for more and more people the ring of truth. We have to remain committed as the people of God not to participate in those lies, not to perpetuate them, not to acquiesce in them, whether through our silence or through our speech. And why is that? Well, there are many reasons. I'm not going to list them all tonight. But one of the biggest ones comes here from our text is that sooner or later, all such lies always come.
come up hard against the immovable rock of reality. The reality of the way things really are. The one who is really in charge of the universe. And that brings us to this great transitional verse, verse 5, which begins with those iconic words repeated so many times through the scriptures. But God. But God. Let's think back to Doeg. So, uh, who knows, after his acquiescence in Saul's big lie, um, what perks Doeg started to enjoy in the court of Saul. Who knows what power he accumulated, what a, a bump he saw in his income, perhaps. You can only imagine. But whatever reward Doeg might have received from Saul pales to vanishing next to the very different recompense he could expect from the Lord. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. We'll bear that imagery of uprooting in mind because we're going to circle back to it when we come to verse 8. This is not going to be merely some slap on the wrist, a, a minor chastisement the, uh, we sometimes describe as the loving discipline of a heavenly father. That is not what David is referring to here. No, this is the wrath and curse of God coming in vengeance against an adversary who has rebelled against him, who has been confirmed in that rebellion, who has elevated himself arrogantly in pride and put his lie in the place of God's truth. And so look at the reaction then of the righteous in verse 6. And remember here that Hebrew poetry doesn't rhyme with sounds, like the, the final sound of the line. It rhymes instead uh, with ideas and images. We've talked about this before. And here the rhyming ideas in verse 6 are fear in the first line and laughter in the second line. Isn't that interesting? The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him. Now, fear and laughter don't at first seem to go together, right? They don't seem to be a pair. Except... I challenge you to rethink that because there are times when they do. Last, last week when we were in North Carolina, we enjoyed some great playgrounds around the Raleigh area. One of them had a bunch of what the kids called spinning things of various kinds. Uh, you'd sit on them and you'd get spun around really fast. And In that moment, I think that's a tiny small-scale, very basic example of a place where fear and laughter come together. As grown-ups, you might think of the last time you were on a, a roller coaster. Fear and laughter can coincide, and they do so here. Along lines really quite similar to what we talked about this morning, about cosmic catastrophes, natural disasters. There's a fear, but also a fascination that's not unhealthy. This, this righteous person sees the judgment of God against the arrogant liar of the opening verses, and he thinks, wow, that is really serious. He sees displayed the unleashed might of God in wrath against his enemy. He sees that arrogance laid low. He sees those beloved lies exposed. And he recognizes this God who has created me and redeemed me is not someone to be trifled with. 
but to be revered. The fear of the Lord. It's not just for God's enemies, it's for God's people. The fear of the Lord is, in fact, the beginning of wisdom. Remember, one of the ways Scripture teaches God's people to keep this attitude of holy, reverent fear of God is through its descriptions of God's judgment on unrepentant sin. But even as there is fear, there is also laughter. See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. It's laughter like the laughter of God in Psalm 2. He who sits in the heavens laughs. What all this comes down to in the end, what makes the difference between Doeg and David, between God's people and God's enemies, it's a matter of trust. What are you trusting? What are you relying on? Where are you taking refuge? What are you counting on to preserve you and to provide for you through the threats and dangers and deprivations of life? So Doeg and those like him um, ignore the law of God and then go and boast about it because they think they don't need him. They've identified some other way that they think their needs are going to be met, some other source of provision and protection. In Doeg's case, it would be hope of promotion in Saul's administration. But ironically, ironically, the very place that they've chosen to put their trust is actually the very thing that is going to destroy them. He has sought refuge in his own destruction, it says. See, this is what sin does. It ultimately consumes those who give themselves over to it and expect it to help them. What we think will make our lives happier and better very often has the power to do exactly the opposite. And do you see what David is saying here? It all stems from a problem of misplaced trust. Which brings us, at last, to verses 8 and 9. But I, David says, I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. The person under judgment is going to be uprooted, right? They're complementary images. One person's uprooted. David, on the other hand, is picturing himself as planted securely in the ground with deep roots, flourishing, growing upwards, bearing fruit. And why is there this great difference? Between the uprooted one and the planted one, well, it's, again, it's that trust issue we were talking about. It's because of a difference in trust. This is what distinguishes these two men and the two groups of people they represent. I trust, David says, in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name for it is good in the presence of the godly. So in the end, what David is taking his stand on is the character of God. It's what God is like. That's what David is counting on. When you see God's name mentioned there at the end, just think about God's character. Think about of every, everything that God has told us about himself. That's what his name represents. The name of God, the character of God. That is a stable, spiritual bedrock. It's something that's not going to shift around. It is a place where you can plant your feet. The Lord is a God that you can trust. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also, the body they may even kill. God's truth abideth still, and his kingdom is forever. You can count on it. You can build your life upon it. You know, I skipped over this earlier, but I want to point it out now. 
the psalm really ends very much as it began. If you look at the second half of verse 1, even from verse 1, David has been contrasting the boastful wickedness of Doeg with what? With the steadfast love of God. It doesn't change. It endures all the day. And so Doeg can do his worst. He can love his lies. He can brag about literally getting away with murder. But this isn't going to change. This steadfast love, this covenantal commitment of God to his people, it's not going anywhere. And so this psalm is presenting for us then these two paths. The path of self-reliance and the path of God-reliance. Trust in our own ideas and desires and instincts and feelings or trust in the character of God the word of God, the law of God, and the work of God, especially the work of God on our behalf. And that is a choice that makes all the difference in the world. And that contrast is all the clearer now that Christ, the son of David, has come into the world. See, on the one hand, we can see in Christ the perfect example of a man who trusted in the steadfast love of God, who would not live by the lies of the tempter, but instead insisted on living by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Said, not my will, but yours be done. Why? Because he trusted that his heavenly father was going to be able to deliver him from death. The humility, the self-sacrifice of Jesus is the opposite Exact opposite of the arrogance of the supposedly mighty man of this psalm. See, Jesus is not just our example of somebody who perfectly trusted in God. Jesus is so much more than that because Jesus is, in fact, the object of our trust. He is the one we trust. We trust not just like Jesus, but in Jesus, in what he has done for us in his life and death and resurrection from the dead. And we are planted in his house because of his steadfast love. We are immovable. We are flourishing there forever because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And so as David waited for the name of the Lord, we are waiting for Jesus eagerly looking for his return. When once and for all, his reality will overwhelm and outshine all of the counterfeits, all of the lies that are taking up space in his world, his world between now and then. And all that will remain will be his truth, his grace, his steadfast love for us forever. That's good news. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that um, you've given us this psalm to see this great contrast between self-reliance and God-reliance between boasting in evil and loving a lie 
versus humbling ourselves beneath your law and your truth and casting ourselves, abandoning ourselves to your way of salvation, forgiveness, and the hope of eternal life. Help us, we pray, to live with courage in a world that is so full of lies. Cling to your truth, to be shaped by it. To wait patiently for your name. Till Christ comes again. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.